0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new mainstream podcast where we explore the impact of multicultural consumers on marketing and media. I'm your host Mario Carrasco and co-founder of Think Now. Today, our guest is Jill Bishop, founder and CEO of Multilingual Connections. Welcome, Jill.
1: Thanks, Mario. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, happy to have you. Um, so, please tell us. About your background, um, and you know, you have a PhD as well, and 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 how you came to found multilingual connections.
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a linguistic anthropologist. Um, I was originally, uh, I always loved language and culture, and I wasn't sure what I would do with it, but I wound up getting a degree in teaching Spanish. And um, when I graduated college, I actually went to Israel and taught English for a year at the high school level. Came back to Chicago. Uh, got a great job as a high school Spanish teacher, and within a couple months, I just realized I wasn't ready for uh, for that to be it with my education and with my travel. Uh, so I started looking into graduate programs and came across linguistic anthropology, which is something I saw is an undergrad but never never really pursued and I realized that this was a way of bringing my interests together of of language and culture and so uh went out to UCLA and started the program um I wound up specializing in a dialect of Spanish spoken by descendants of the Jews who were exiled from Spain in 1492 uh it's called judeo spanish and I assumed that that would be my future um, teaching in academia um, teaching in the anthropology department and following my passion around this language. Uh, But as they say, man plans, God laughs. And um, I made a couple little decisions along the way and a few opportunities were presented to me that took me in a completely different direction. That's so
0: interesting. (laughs) I, I, because I, um, I studied literature in undergrad, um, got my master's in literature and similarly got a job teaching high school English. Um, And you know, I was young at the time, same thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I could do this forever. Yeah. And you know,
1: Or at least not at that moment. I think for me, I was 22 and I just felt like there was so much, I felt like I had more in common with the high school kids than with the other teachers in the teacher's cafeteria. And uh, just more, more kind of um, desire to travel and and study. And um, I actually, I thought I would get a master's in second language acquisition, but that's when I found linguistic anthropology and realized that that would be really um, the integration of everything that I was interested in. Um, But, and I love the program, love what I was doing, and then I came to Chicago for uh, the American Anthropological Association annual meeting, and we saw that there was um, a user research company that was hosting an open house um, for uh, for folks at the at the AAA, and we were like, "Sweet, free wine and and cheese, let's go!" Uh, <laughs> you know, thinking it would be fun and interesting, but never imagining uh, ever that that it would be a direction that I would go. But I I wound up getting hired. It was Sapient. Uh, I was doing user research in the very early days. So this was um, this was nineteen this two thousand actually, and um, it brought me back to Chicago and it gave me a new way of applying my anthropology um, in the corporate setting and something that I'd never even heard of at that time. They didn't talk about um, qualitative research and academia and all the different ways that you could apply your your graduate studies, and so um, it gave me a chance to spend a couple of years doing really interesting work applying my academic background in a very concrete way. Uh, And then, you know, little things happen, and, um, you know, new jobs and new opportunities, and some jobs lost, some jobs gained. I wound up working for Chipotle. I was in charge of language and culture programs for a couple of years. And then I realized that there was an opportunity to do something on my own. And uh, I launched my company 15 years ago, almost 16, actually. Um, Originally, uh, the goal was uh, providing English and Spanish training in the workplace. So helping uh, employees and restaurants and manufacturing facilities and hotels communicate better so that they could do their jobs better, more safely, more effectively and move up within their companies. And then somebody I went to college with asked uh, one day if I could translate a website. And I said, sure. And then I hung up the phone and Googled how to translate a website, uh, found some people to do it. And I realized there was a big opportunity to run a translation agency. Uh, So, you know, lots of changes between that moment uh, and today. uh, But now we're a Chicago area translation and transcription agency. We work in about 75 different languages. Uh, We have team all over the world. And it's been a really exciting way of bringing together all of my loves and all of my passions.
0: That's amazing and quite a journey. Um, and and I want to delve more into your company, but before we get into that, I I do want to know more about linguistic anthropology. So, sure. like, I, I think I think people most people are are, are familiar with kind of what linguistics means. Um, and I guess is you know looking at linguistic anthropology, are you looking at culture through a linguistic lens, or is it? history of language or is that more linguistics coming I mean, can you kind of break it apart for people that are not exposed to linguistic anthropologists
1: sure um, nobody knows what it is <laughs> you know, I would say that I would, I'm a linguistic anthropologist and in these I would get these blank faces uh, or I'd get um, Indiana Jones jokes that was kind of either or um, yeah. but it looks uh, linguistic anthropology looks at how people use language and so linguistics linguistics looks at language and isolation of the speakers and linguistic anthropology looks at speakers and what they do with language and how they create and share culture and so um, for me I was I was always interested in language but I more than anything I wanted to think about how people were using it my grandparents uh, were born in the US but their parents came from Russia and Poland um, and were speakers of Yiddish uh, which is a Jewish um, dialect and my grandparents spoke it and then a little bit got passed down to my parents and then a little bit to me and then I started studying Hebrew and I was just really interested in why why my parents didn't learn Hebrew and they only learned a little bit of Yiddish and why didn't my grandparents teach them Yiddish. And so like trying to understand decisions around language, what language means to people, how people use language to enact different identities and tell stories and um, create um, create a sense of who they are and create relationships. And so for, for my doctorate, I spent a year in Israel looking at speakers of this language, Judeo-Spanish, which is uh, an endangered language spoken primarily by people over their 70s or 80s. Nobody is monolingual in the language anymore. Um, and I was I wanted to understand um, its place in... In this community, why people chose to pass it down to their children or not. Uh, I watched uh, groups of older women get together and tell stories and sing songs, and they would alternate between uh, Judeo Spanish and Hebrew. I spent time with Greek Holocaust survivors uh, and uh, at a community center and listened to them tell stories uh, that would just alternate between, um, again, Hebrew, Judeo Spanish, some Greek, a little bit of French, uh, and just trying to understand the role that this language played in. Um, in their identities and in the transmission of their culture, uh, so that's kind of the the difference uh, with linguistics looking at it in, in um, isolation from the speakers, and linguistic anthropology looking at what people are doing with language.
0: That, that's fascinating, and it, and it makes me think about what's happening to Spanish here in the U.S. Sure. In terms of you know, of course we had we you know we had the large Hispanic immigration influx during the 80s um primarily spanish speakers and flash forward now you know most growth in, in among us hispanics is coming from us births right and and sure. that's leading to um hispanics becoming more english dominant i mean how how do you do you have an opinion there or what you know in terms of what's happening to the spanish language in the us among mm-hmm. among us hispanics do you see I mean I don't want to say similarities but any any you know um kind of lines to be to be drawn there
1: Absolutely and you know language is never language isn't fixed it's constantly changing through the mouths and the lives of of its speakers and so um, looking at judeo spanish the, the language of the jews spoken in spain 500 years ago was was slightly different than than the non-jews at the time because they needed terminology for um, for religious concepts that didn't exist and then mm-hmm. over 500 years it grew and changed based on where they were and what they were preserving, what they were adapting. And so language is constantly in flux. And so you look at Spanish speakers in the U.S. um, or descendants of Spanish speakers who are living in the U.S., what their language serves different purposes now. And it's constantly changing. We, um, you know, there's a lot of linguistic purism where people say, you know, oh, the language that people speak, whether it's English, Spanish, anything, you know, it, these what are these kids doing to this language? You know, it's not, <laughs> you know, I we would never would have said that. Look at how broken it is, or how grammatically incorrect people are. Um, but that's what people said a hundred years ago about the language at the time, and and it's constantly in flux. And so you don't, uh, you the only way to preserve a language is when it stop it's you stop speaking it. Um, and so when you look at what um, Speakers in the U.S. are doing; they're making it their own. It is, it is, it is exactly the same process that has happened throughout human history, where changes happen. Um, you know, languages come in contact with each other, and and it just continues to grow and change and and become useful for people. Um, so, you know, people can disparage Spanglish, but that's. Spanglish exists as a, as a, as an, a result of, of contact of language and culture, and it continues to exist because it's doing something for people. It's allowing people to enact both sides of their identities uh, as Spanish speakers and as English speakers. And so that's something that's important to understand, that it's not necessarily something to look at and disparage or to criticize. But this is how this is this is the language as it exists today. And so if you want to reach those people, think about what's going to be meaningful and relevant for them.
0: I I love that perspective because, um, the research bears that out 100%, right? Like, even though this idea that it's not black and white is so spot on and, and so spot on to the bicultural, bilingual experience of U.S. Hispanics, because we've found that even though descendants of Spanish speakers that know little to no Spanish, um, having Spanglish, even a word in marketing materials does do something mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, activating, um, uh, I don't know, nostalgia, authenticity, something about that. So that's, that's a really great perspective. Um, and uh, one last question, just because you were talking about evolution <laughs> and yeah. I mean, the, the, a, a big A big conversation, I don't know if you've been following, among U.S. Hispanics, um, Latinos, is is this term Latinx. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we we found, we put out research just about how only 2% of U.S. Hispanics really know or identify with that term. Right. However, there's like, there's just, there's a lot, especially when you're looking at social media, Twitter, there are a lot of people that would seem like that are embracing it. Um, I mean, how how does this fit into this theory of of kind of, of, of language evolution? Because I I actually saw something that was ex- was exact almost exactly what you were talking about. Like you know, th- th- this it, it, when it was an academic talking about you know people that reject the term Latinx. Like you know, I guess they're okay with the Royal Academy of Spanish dictating how they speak, and I and I thought that was really. <laughs> It it points to what you were talking about, you know. So I don't know how how do, you, <laughs> how do you how do you feel about that term and and what's happening in terms of of adoption of of, of this term Latinx.
1: Well, it's interesting. First of all, I'll say I don't have a, a an academic perspective on it. I I hear bits and pieces periodically, but it's it's funny that somebody would say well, you're okay with the Royal Academy of Spanish telling you how to speak. But it, <laughs> in in that place you're criticizing it but it's okay in every other aspect so you know if i want to just start alternating my my adjective modification and using masculine for feminine for an object that is inherently you know by linguistically masculine like that there are rules in grammar and so um you know, whether it's the Royal Academy or someone else who's telling you that those are the rules, um, you know, you, you can just, you can, you can pick and choose and justify whatever you want, essentially. But with, with Latinx, what I have understood is that uh, exactly what you said, that a lot of people don't feel like it represents them and it's almost being imposed by them by ultra political correctness. And those outside of the Spanish speaking community who, who want to be appropriate and want to be politically correct and want to be inclusive, I think it's easy for, for us or for, for someone like me to say, "Oh, we should use Latinx," but but if I'm imposing it on a community that doesn't want it, then then we really need to think about where this where these terms are coming from, and that's in the U.S. I don't know what's being what's happening in the Spanish speaking world. Um, About that, because that just goes back to every, the the inherent grammatical um, structures of the language. So it's beyond just that one word. It's does this, is this generalizing throughout? Um, And so I've, you know, I've heard a lot of, a lot of. U.S. Latinos say, you know, or Latinx say, you know, I don't want this and stop, you know, stop calling, stop making me change my language in the way that I refer to myself. So I think it's really sensitive, and I I don't know what, how it will all shake out in the next decade. Let's say um, language use or language change can can be exceptionally rapid, and it can take a really long time. Um, and so a change like this could be could be accepted, and ultimately it could be rejected.
0: Yeah, it it's it's super interesting and and I and I dug into it. I mean, we you know, as a market research firm, we just kind of put the data out there. Um it, and for better or worse, it was by far our most popular study. It got picked up by New York Times, Washington Post. Um and and we got slammed, right? For for just online at least for just reporting that 2% of the U.S. Hispanic population identifies with that term, and and moreover, almost like half of the respondents were, were offended by it. Um, and we were just publishing the data, um, and you and got
1: slammed for that.
0: We got slammed for that, <laughs> oh. like like we were anti-Latinx. And I was like, no, we're not. We, you know, actually, the whole impetus for it was that during the the Democratic primaries, you know, we saw that significant political figures like Elizabeth Warren were using the term. And I was like, wow, that's like, has, has this been adopted quicker than I had thought, you know? Um, and I, and I started with some, some, <laughs> some personal research. I asked my mom yeah. and dad, they, they had never heard of the term. <laughs> they never
1: heard of it. Right.
0: And, and so then I, you know, I, I threw it, I threw it to our research team and said, Hey, can, can we look into this? And sure enough. And then, um, we got slammed for it. We said that, you know, we, w- the biggest pushback that I thought was fair was that we didn't include. A large enough base size of LGBTQIA. And I said, okay, okay, let's let let's let's follow up. Let's follow up on that. And so we added 150 respondents that identified as LGBTQIA. We took it a step further and we asked respondents if they had any family members or friends that identified as LGBTQIA. The data came back almost identical. No mm-hmm. statistical significance between well. Those that identified as LGBTQIA, I think it went up to three percent. So okay. not a statistical significance there. And then the, among you know people that had friends and family members, it was still two percent. So um, you know we're, we're tracking it now. Pew Research actually ended up doing almost the same exact study we did six months later, and they got the same exact result, two percent. So um, it will be interesting, like you said. Like I think. You know, similar to Hispanic or Latino, I do think that there was a, a, a pushback. Although w- when that term was first introduced, although ironically, you know, those terms were created in part by the Latino community and um, and really to kind of uh, organize and 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 have a political voice. Um, but uh, we'll we'll see what happens with Latinx.
1: It's so interesting. I'll look forward to more research updates.
0: Yeah, um, shifting gears a bit. So you know, one 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 of the cons, one of my favorite concepts as a researcher is this idea of um, translation versus versus transcreation. Um, and I and everybody's heard of translation. Likely, I think transcreations is a is a concept a word that people hear less frequently. For you know, sure. Can Can you tell us a little bit about? I mean, what translation is versus transcreation and I guess you use cases.
1: Sure, yeah. So translation is is text based. Um, so it, early on, when I started the business, I would I would say we do translation, and they'd say, "Oh, can you? You know, you work in hospitals?" And I would have to explain, "No, that's interpretation." So interpretation is spoken. Translation is text based. Um, but now the difference between translation and transcreation is is a newer distinction. So first of all, translation is rendering an original text into. Um, a target language. And so when you translate something, it, the goal is that it's readable and natural and doesn't, and accurate, of course, and it doesn't read like a translation. So I hear from people all the time that say that they, they were doing translation and it sounded really clunky or not natural. And that's not, that's never the goal. It's not, you know, there's a, it you don't want it to be a word for word translation because that's not gonna read naturally, but you want it to be an accurate and fluent sounding translation. Um, so if you're doing legal documents, you're doing survey content, you're doing um, most of your website, That's you're translating concepts that exist in another language translation is sufficient transcreation is i would say a newer service and because it's more of a it's a blend of translation and copywriting so when a concept doesn't exist in the target language you need to rethink how how can you convey this how can you create resonance with your with your audience how can you create that emotional feel that you're that you're creating in your original language so when there's emotional impact, cultural nuance, humor, or wordplay, that often is really challenging when you're trying to um, to translate that. And so that's where trans- transcreation would come in. So one perfect example is um, the show Orange is the New Black. Um, you could translate that accurately, Orange is the New Black, in a way that it would read natural and accurate in other languages, but you, there's no chance that you would conjure up the... The feel of that in those other languages, if you just went with translation. So, with transcreation, you have to re envision um, the original completely and come up with something that will still have that same kind of tone and feel and emotional impact, but it's a deviation um, from or reimagining. Um, from the original. Um, and even with, you know, orange is the new black, you could say like, I just turned 50. So 50 is the new 40 or 50 is the new 30, um, mm-hmm. that concept of the new, what does that mean? And how did that come into being in English? And so we don't think about how full of metaphor and nuance our our languages and our writing is. Um, I don't play sports, so I see these sports metaphors all the time and I, they jump out at me because I don't know what, they, I often don't know what they mean. You can't translate a baseball metaphor. and that it's going to be received well. So in those cases, you need to re-envision the content.
0: That's super interesting, and i, I I've realized that all these years, I, I really what I thought transcreation was is really just good translation. Um, that's that that you completely changed the way I think about it.
1: It's good translation when it when it requires more than translation when there's a really strong cultural right. component to it or linguistic. Um, we ha- there's a bank here in Chicago um, that has a tagline "Bring It Home," um, and it's very Chicago based. "Bring It Home," and we had to transcreate that um, that tagline because "Bring It Home." You could say that in Spanish or in Hindi or in Vietnamese, but it doesn't, that's not, that's not going to have that same, same impact. And so I was just looking um, at the references, the literal translations we had, we bring it within your reach or bring it close to you within the reach of your hand. Um, so those were the literal translations of some Spanish alternatives that we came up with that would connect and create that same kind of feel um, without it being bring it home. Cause that, that expression just didn't exist.
0: So, so, Tell us a little bit about that process because I'm envisioning like a writer's room mm-hmm. um, you have you have the tagline you're you're throwing out ideas i mean h- how does that work certainly. The-
1: it is definitely um, not an easy process. It's not a quick process. It's not a cheap process. Um, you know, with translation, it's typically charged um, on a per word basis. So, you know, exactly you have a thousand words in this document. You know, this is how much it's going to cost. With transcreation, you can come up with pricing based on how creative and I mean, how much the content, you know, what, what kind of content and process will be. But it's typically on an hourly basis because it really requires um, a different level of creativity and a different level of skill than just just translation so um, sometimes though it's something that can be done just with one individual but when it's exceptionally high um, high visibility content it's great when you have a brainstorming session like you're describing you know we we did some work for Netflix last year and with um, some of the titles the the show titles that we were doing we had four linguists um, working together and they would each brainstorm on their own and then they would come together in a video chat and share their ideas refine them and then and go back and kind of sit on it a little bit and then come back together and come up with a couple of top um, top contenders. Um, so imagine for Netflix, if you translate a title and the title doesn't mean anything in Arabic or in Portuguese, nobody's going to click. So it doesn't matter how good the content is, how good the dubbing or the subtitles are. If, if the title loses you, you're lost. And so that's where, you know, really making sure you're spending the time and money developing, um, that, that high touch, high potential, um, high connection content is important.
0: That's so amazing. And, it's, and as you were, t- it's funny because when you were talking about transcreation, I thought about money heist. I don't know if you're familiar with that Netflix show. I'm not. So money heist was, um, a, a Spanish show and it Shot in Spain um and the original title is La Casa de papel. And I had
1: no idea that i I know the title in Spanish I didn't know it was translated into money as money heist that's yeah really and, you know
0: I, I i speak Spanish, and so when I read that I'm like, that's not even close I mean I get it it's it's what um the show's about and so in my head right now, as you were talking, I was like, why didn't they translate it? I'm like, oh la Casa de papel is really the closest idiom that I could think of in English is House of Cards, mm-hmm. and I was Too like, "That late. show, already, <laughs> that, that show already exists." So <laughs> that's kind, I, I feel like that's exactly what what you do, right? I mean, yeah. and do the linguists they have to watch some of the show, or or like, how does that happen? How are you? How For are sure. you getting? Like, are you watching some of the show? Do they give you like? like, like a treatment to read? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You can't
1: do that without having all the context. And so you might have trailers, you would have, um, you know, marketing content, you know, all kinds of information. The more information that you can give to the linguist in that moment, the better the chances are that it's going to be translated in a way that's really going to resonate. Um, and oftentimes, um, the translations that a company like us that we're providing our clients can't independently verify they have no idea if we did a good job until they hear (laughs) from their end clients and so it's um so we would come up with back translations and then a rationale to explain it so that they could at least intellectually get behind a decision um and understand like you know oh that that seems to be what i'm going for that that rationale really makes sense to me so let's go with this even though i don't speak this language and have no way of knowing um so it's it's really complicated and it's really interesting um and becoming more and more important as companies are marketing globally Um, they want to be able to create that same kind of connection internationally as they do with their with their home population and so um spending that that time and think thinking about it in advance we find that the most successful engagements are those where there's time and thought in advance instead of the oh crap afterwards like we have to get this translated you know if we had if we had thought through some things beforehand you know it would it would make the process smoother or more transparent or more affordable you know there's so many so many benefits to thinking about translation before the project even starts Um, it's not always an option but when it's an option it's it's always recommended
0: yeah and, and and that's so fascinating you and you talk about international but I feel like it's equally important now the US being multicultural sure. country right I mean we're talking about Spanish um but then you know looking at um Asian Americans right I mean it, it, the fastest growing group in terms of immigration is coming from Asia which um I feel like there's lots of opportunity there and, and companies don't tackle it just because of the perceived di- difficulty, the amount of languages, right? Um, and then, and and and, t- and and you're talking about your process. I feel like it's so important to engage a company that's thoughtful about it because I've seen. I don't. I don't know if you've seen this. There's so many just really bad translations. Um, oh, yeah. And, and also, like talking about transcreation. I don't know if you saw. This was one of the most egregious ones last year. I won't mention the company, but they, you know they were doing this Mother's Day promotion. Okay. And the the theme was um, kind of like yoga, um, mindfulness, right? And they wanted to do and and they wanted to do a, a play on words of Namaste, and um, this was in Spanish. And so there really isn't right in Spanish that I know of um, a translation for Namaste. So they thought they would do wordplay and do Spanglish, and they did Mama Stay. <laughs>
1: Oh yikes!
0: <laughs> oh my god! So for those of you that don't know what that means, don't Google it. Um, but it, it's you know it's it's an uh, it's an offensive term, <laughs> um, and I just couldn't believe it. This is a huge company. This is one of the largest retailers that that made this mistake. So um, I'm just like I don't even know how things like that happen.
1: Yeah, no one's immune. <laughs> no size <science laughs> company is immune to putting their foot in their mouths.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. i mean so i I guess that this is a good segue into the next question that I was going to ask you I mean, have you seen i mean twenty twenty we're recording this uh right at the end of of, of january twenty twenty one I feel like you know twenty twenty was definitely uh a cultural reckoning of sorts um, and there's a big push for diversity and inclusion across the board, you know, not not only from a hiring perspective but from an inclusivity inc- inclusivity marketing perspective. Have you seen uh increased kind of interest traffic to your company as a result of what's happened in 2020?
1: Uh, we have in different ways, and so we we provide translation. We also do audio transcription. We do voiceover and subtitling and phone interpretation and uh, and transcription, of course. And so we work across a variety of interest of industries, uh, but one of our main areas is within market research, uh, and that kind of brings in my background in anthropology and in qualitative research, and then translation. And so it's kind of the sweet spot, and what I um, get most excited about when we're able to support, um, whether it's you know in depth interviews, focus groups, or, or, um, or surveys. And so we've seen, we've seen, we were so appreciative for the year. Um, Our company did okay this year. And, you know, in March, we had no idea how things were going to shake out as, as many of us did uh, or didn't. Um, And so we've seen an increase. Some of our, our market research projects were on hold, but some um, research really increased. Um, We had a lot of government increases in our translation and a lot of corporate Translation increases. A lot of it, honestly, was long around COVID and communication required to communicate with whether if it was governments with their constituents um, around reopening plans, around safety, um, schools, universities and corporations around their plans. So everybody who had a plan um, that needed to they realized thankfully, the importance of translating this kind of sensitive content into multiple languages so that everybody could could access it. Um, so those areas really grew for us. And, um, and then also around um, virtual meetings. So obviously, face-to-face meetings went virtual. And then instead of having an interpreter on site, as they might have before, um, they wanted to subtitle or dub their content afterwards. Um, but then also with these virtual conferences, um, I think it, it opened accessibility, not just across the country, but across the world for people to participate in conferences that otherwise would have been prohibitive from a travel and cost perspective. And so with that globalizing of conferences, there is an even greater need for, for language access. Um, And lots of people speak English. And, you know, even in the U.S., you know, we have 70 million people speak a language other than English at home. It doesn't mean that they don't speak English outside and can't. Um, But even when English, when you, English is, is pretty good, um, you know, whether you're Outside the U.S. or inside, it helps so much when you're able to give people the content in their own language. Um, it creates a stronger connection. People learn better when the content is presented in their native language. Um, people are able to report better when you're doing um, surveys, when you're doing focus groups, when they're able to express themselves in their nat- in their nat- native language. Um, so we've we've really seen. Um, The kind of an increase in in people, in companies, and organizations responding to that, the ability to reach out more, and the need to reach out more effectively, um, and create those meaningful connections through language.
0: That's that's great. I mean, because you're you're, you know, you're you're kind of taking a temperature of what's happening from companies and government agencies really investing or not in this, and it sounds like they are, which is. I mean, from a COVID perspective, so important, so critical, but even what you mentioned, one of the use cases about meetings and virtual meetings, I didn't even think about that. Um, that, that That's amazing. Um, you know, kind of get, getting into the weeds a little bit um, when, you know, one thing I think about is like, how, how does a company choose? And I'm, I'm defaulting to Spanish because that's the, you know, we have the most outside of English. We have the most, uh, spanish speakers here in the u.s i think i think if we were a a spanish-speaking country we're like number two number three Mm -hmm. in the world um you know when a company comes to you asking for a translation you know for spanish how does a company choose or how do you guide a company like to for what type of spanish because um and this is really your, your specialty, right? Your background. I mean, there's, there's so many dialects, you know, from the Latin American countries to Spain, Spanish to Spanglish. Um, how do you make it, how do you make that decision? And is, is there a default to go to?
1: Sure. So we always ask where their target audience is. Uh, sometimes they don't know and sometimes they absolutely know. Um, so we do, um, it, 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 when you have the luxury, it, it is, best to, to localize to the, to the target. So if you are working exclusively in Spain, it's a no brainer. You're going to use a Spanish, um, translator. Um, if you're working in Argentina, ideal to use an Argentinian translator, but if you're working in the U.S., we do what we call U.S. Hispanic Spanish, which is kind of a neutral Spanish that everyone will understand, even if not everyone would make the choice to use that term. And, we, you know, when you are, even within the U.S. with English, there's so much dialect variation. And so, you know, in Northern Wisconsin, they call the drinking fountain the bubbler. Um, certainly, that's not a term that you would use for, for mass marketing. Um, new, I've never new,
0: heard of that in my yeah, life.
1: <laughs> right. And in Chicago, we're all about gym shoes, you know, not tennis shoes, not sneakers, you know, or pop, not soda. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, starting with English where, you know, you can kind of wrap your head around those, those subtle differences and how, if you hear somebody say here in Chicago, if we hear hear somebody say sneakers, we know they're not from here um, or their parents weren't from here. And so, um, so then when you're thinking about another language like Spanish, you've got such unbelievable dialect variation. And so you want to translate in a way that everyone will understand if you have the option of localizing to one specific place, if that is your target audience, that's best, but otherwise professional translators are able to work and experience especially with Spanish, are very experienced with creating as neutral Spanish as possible, where you're not going to have an outlier like a bubbler. Um, you're not going to have, you know, terms that are only used in Argentina and Uruguay, or, you know, you really work to make sure that it will be, um, easily understood, even if the, the reader wouldn't have chosen that term themselves.
0: That, yep, that's, that's, um, that's great insight. And, um, I mean, this may be sacrilege to say to to a professional translator such as yourself, but is it ever okay for a company to use Google Translate? (laughs) I mean, is that... Is, is that ever a viable option?
1: Yes, so it's 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 a really important question. and so I've written a bunch of blogs um, with subjects friends don't let friends use Google Translate um, <laughs> but with um with a lot of exceptions and so I use it all the time for informal purposes. Uh, Google Translate and other machine translation is increasingly sophisticated and its abilities now versus ten years ago are are really incredibly different. Um, there are some places where it is really great and really, really useful. And so certainly for informational purposes, when you have a lot of content you need to get through it. It serves a function. Um, from a company perspective, corporate perspective, we caution um, to really think through very carefully about it. And what we recommend is what's called MTPE, MTPE, Machine Translation Post-Edit, where we don't just throw it through Google Translate. We have more sophisticated um, um, engines or more specific and selective engines that sync up with our computer-assisted translation technology. And then following that, with a human post editor. And uh, a post editor for machine translation is not the same as a translator. A translator is skilled at translating from scratch. A post editor has been trained to do side-by-side comparisons of the original and the output, and kind of anticipate mistakes that the machine is likely to make. Um, I just wrote, I'm sorry, I I was gonna go go ahead.
0: no, no, go ahead.
1: Uh, I just wrote a blog on Friday, um, about, um, uh, not necessary or not required. So, uh, the Virginia Department of Public Health, um, they use a Google Translate plugin on their website. And in doing so, they're able to get huge volumes of content out in dozens and dozens of languages. And there's a lot of value there. However, mistakes happen with machine translation. And sometimes those consequences can be really extreme. And so they were saying that the vaccine is not required. That was the English original. And Google Translate translated it not as not required, but no es necesaria. And so people read that as it's not necessary. Um, Mm -hmm. They were trying to say it's not required. It's not mandated, but it's still recommended. And so as a Spanish speaker reading, la vacuna no es necesaria, you have a completely different sense of, of what you should do with that information. And so that's an example where a post editor, and obviously with this kind of content, that much content you can't in most cases, hire an agency to review, you know, hundreds of thousands of words constantly. Um, but it gives a really great example of where things can get lost um, and the meaning. That's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference, and it can be a life or death difference.
0: That's huge. That's huge. And yeah, I'm, i I and and yeah, it's 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 not clear cut. I mean, like you said, it it sounds good, right? That you can make your website accessible in hundreds of languages. But then issues like this arise, right? That that really you have to be aware of and, and have to I mean, in some cases maybe you're, you know, you're looking what when to pull in a professional or not.
1: Right. And it's translation is expensive. And I'm not gonna say that it's not and doing it right. Costs money, but there are ways to do it more affordably, and you don't have to feel like you have to translate everything as a as a company. You could be selective about it. You could do if if money is tight, you can do one pass with one human and not an editor, or you can do MTPE, where you've got machine translation and the editor. There are things that you can do where it doesn't have to be the full, um, what we call TEP translation plus editing plus proofreading. Um, but when you're trying to reach out and create connections with an audience, you, by having these kinds of mistakes, you're saying, you know, I want your business, but I'm not willing to pay for it. I'm not willing to really make sure that this, this connects with you. And so I I think it's really important um, for companies that are trying to reach out to new markets um, to be really strategic about it. And uh, again, you don't have to translate absolutely everything, but have a, have a reason for why you're translating what you're translating and a reason for why you're not translating other content.
0: That's great. And I think um, that's a, a great place for us to stop. We're, we're heading up here in our time. Um, you mentioned a blog, Jill. Is there wh- where can people find your content, your website, um, social media handles?
1: Sure. So we're multilingualconnections.com. Uh, and you can find we're uh, Twitter M underscore connections. Uh, but I would say the best way is just to go to our website and then all of our social links are there. But multilingualconnections.com we're based in Evanston, just outside of Chicago.
0: It was a pleasure um, having you on, Joe. Thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Mario. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks to everyone listening in. To get more multicultural insights, check us out at thinknow.com and follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform final thank you to our producer lucas martinez who created our intro music and makes our podcast sound great to email him reach out to martinez.lucas.a at gmail.com